You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where... Each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week, which received a lot of positive feedback and where we discussed some of Alan's really interesting research into the criticism of the CTA slash trend-following community uh, a few years ago, and how he decided to answer those criticisms uh, from the perspective of an allocator. And that led really to some fascinating discoveries and conclusions. As you know, or may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be prerogative without being polarizing. We want to challenge the consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it, as it's a way for us to see that you're getting some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. So with all of that said, Rob, great to have you back this week after an interesting start to the new year. How are you doing? How are things in the UK? As we were just saying before we came on out, it's cold here. Uh, <laughs> it's Winter has finally arrived. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm currently sitting in, in my uh, garden office, which is not particularly well insulated with the heating on maximum uh, and Niels can see, the listeners at home can't see, but Niels can see I'm wearing about 17 layers of clothing to, to try and stay warm. So uh, so yeah, it's definitely winter here in the UK right now. The good news is that the headset actually serves as kind of uh, ear protection, I guess. Uh, yeah, in... <laughs> that's right. And and unlike Niels, I, I actually lost most of my hair many years ago. <laughs> so uh, so there's quite, quite a lot of, uh, of uh, evaporation of heat from my head generally. So yeah, the headset is definitely helping. You know, I was listening to Joe Rogan uh, the other day, and uh, he's also uh, lost his hair. And but he said that was the best thing that happened to him. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you never know. You well, never join, know. join the join the club, Niels. I mean, you know, I'm, just just go I'm to sure your barber. And, you know. I'm, I'm sure I will. Maybe not in that way, but maybe kind of naturally it will yeah. come. Anyways, um, you know, we've got a great lineup. I think it's going to be a really massive Q&A session today with Rob. Um, we had a few questions lined up from uh, the end of last year when we did our two-part special, so we couldn't get to any questions. So prepare yourself for, um, you know, I don't know, 10 questions or so, which is really great. Appreciate that a lot. Before I do my quick market wrap, I obviously always want to give a shout out and acknowledge those of you who left a rating and review. It is something that we notice, something that we always pay attention to, and we really appreciate that. And I actually want to share one of them today because it was very touching. And I think it's it hit, for me at least, kind of on the essence of what we're trying to do with the podcast. It came in from the U.S., um, in the U.S. Uh, iTunes store, and it goes like this. Its headline is Truth, which I really like. And um, the uh, reviewer writes, 
I have never written a review for any podcast, yet I've been listening to many of them, just as most of you who will read this um, has also have also done. And I must say, I'm pleased to allot my first review to this podcast. On this podcast, you will encounter only professionalism. You will become far more educated than you currently are, regardless of market experience and knowledge base, in my view. You will enjoy interviews with some very interesting people and take from them valuable lessons of life and its journey. And most of all, you will enjoy your time invested in listening to all of them. I've given this podcast a five-star rating without hesitation, and I've been listening to it for a few years now. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for uh, leaving that kind rating and review. Uh, we really do appreciate that. Now, in terms of a market wrap, Friday, uh, the Federal Reserve actually announced a bit of good news, namely that it sent $107.4 billion of income earned from its QE bloated portfolio to Uncle Sam last year, and that's up from $86.9 billion in 2020. However, elsewhere in the Fed's playground, we saw some acute pain as evidence in the Treasury complex following the highest CPI number since the 1980s, with the two-year yield jumping to 0.97% to mark a fresh COVID-era high, while the long bond uh, ascended to a near three-month peak at 2.13% in the yield. Stocks managed a modest bounce off Thursday's sharp sell-off, with the Nasdaq gaining 75 basis points yesterday. Crude oil finished the week, ripping past $84 a barrel to test a multi-year high, uh, which I think was locked back in October. And gold, yeah, that ticked a little bit lower. 1816 uh, an ounce was the closing price. And the VIX pulled back to around 19, giving up half of the gains from Thursday. With rates already rising and the Fed laying the ground for official rates to be lifted soon, it's been interesting to see how the market has been rewarding quote-unquote old-style investments and punishing the quote-unquote new economy darlings. In this regard, I could not help noticing that Warren Buffett is making a comeback, despite being heavy uh, in Apple, with the share price of Berkshire breaking above $300 and the BRKB shares now having outperformed the Nasdaq by 20% and hold on to this year-to-date. Remember, it's only mid-January. Another example is the huge drop in Kathy Wood's ARK funds, some of which have now seen drawdowns of more than 50% since their most recent high. Mind you, that is much more than most trend-following funds have ever experienced. Perhaps this is a sign that investors are starting to look at valuations in a more normal way. By relentless depriving investors of risk-free returns, the Federal Reserve and its central bank friends have created an all-asset speculative bubble that may provide investors with little but return-free risk. Investors are familiar with the idea of a trade-off between risk and return. We talk about that a lot in the podcast, which is typically stated as a proposition that investors must accept higher risk if they seek higher expected returns. What investors are typically not taught is that the proposition applies only to efficient risk. For example, if a portfolio is poorly diversified, one can typically find another portfolio um, that can target a higher level of expected return for the same amount of risk or a lower level of risk for the same expected return, like when you add trend following to a classical 60-40 portfolio. Likewise, from a valuation standpoint, there is no simple trade-off between return and risk. Rather, depressed valuations tend to be followed by both strong and long-term 
returns and modest subsequent losses, while extreme valuations, as maybe we see now, tend to be followed by both poor long-term returns and deep subsequent losses. Put simply, investors are not somehow rewarded for accepting higher levels of what Ben Graham said uh, or described as unintelligent risk. Anyway, Rob, it's been a few weeks since we last spoke. How did the year kind of finish up for you? I know we spoke in December. How's the battleship doing? Um, uh, the battleship took a few hits last year. Um, it was doing really reasonably well until of Black Friday, uh, thanks, you know, which uh, did some damage. But the, the overall result wasn't too bad for last year. Um, so the net net was minus 3.6%. Okay. So if you're going to lose money, then low single digits is, is the way yeah. to do it. Um, biggest losses were Euro dollar, heating oil, platinum, US 10 years. Uh, biggest gains, let's have a look, soybean, uh, Swiss stock market index, uh, the VIX and crude oil. So no obvious pattern there in terms of sectors, actually quite, quite, quite a mixture. Um, and um, yeah, it's certainly um, a kind of okay, okay year. I think, I think um, since I've been trading my own money, so that's seven, eight years now, I think I've, this is the, maybe the second calendar year I've lost money. And so my, my, my strike rate is something like five for two, which, you know, I'm, to be happy with and of course being being biased towards trend following biased towards positive skew my my winning years are much bigger on average than my losing years uh, both my losing years have been you know yeah low single digits so I'm, I'm okay with that um so more looking at the year to date so far then so how how has 2022 been so far for me the answer is pretty good i'm up 1.8 percent obviously that that's only a couple of weeks in but, but I'll, I'll take that mm-hmm. um heating oil gasoline big winners there i guess the uh, energy price bubble is is still still happening. Um, small losses in in a, a variety of markets: uh, yen, dollar, Nasdaq, VIX. Uh, and then just looking at last week as a, a direct comparison with with your own figures, as they're usually the last seven days. Um, small gain, up twenty four basis points. Had a very good day on. I think it was Thursday. I think I was up two percent. Mm-hmm. Um, but some losing days netting against that. So net net, a kind of modest gain not really much more than noise to be honest um big winners again in the energy complex heating oil and gasoline uh vix down a little bit as well um so yeah sort of okay start to the year uh i did did not directly related to this which is all futures trading but um in my long only portfolio i do have a bias towards value uh and i also have a an underweight in the us so i'm i'm kind of not displeased with potentially a rotation, or you know, back into value and away from tech, which, you know, which the the US uh, indices are very heavily focused on. Um, but uh, fingers crossed on that in that respect. And how is the your new approach that we talked about back in December? Your new approach about having potentially 140 markets or so that you could invest in, and then finding the ones that will give you the most or the best proxy for for that um, portfolio. Um, yeah, how's that all working out? It's interesting because actually, so at the moment, um, looking at my kind of current positions rather than historically, my my risk measured as annualized standard deviation or expected annualized standard deviation is a shade under twenty percent versus mm-hmm. my target twenty five. So I have built up a little bit of risk back since Black Friday. You know, in the days after Black Friday, I cut my positions quite sharply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got nearly average risk on, but I'm achieving that with only let me just see one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm achieving that with about twelve positions. Wow. Uh, out of 140 potential markets. So it, it is kind of interesting to see how the approach says, well, actually, you know, you don't need as many positions on perhaps as you think you do. 
Uh, and some of those positions are things I would would not have been trading a few months ago. I could tell you. So um, you know, so there's some fairly like the, the, we've I've mentioned the VIX. I've mentioned yen dollar in there. Uh, I've got U.S. gas. Uh, but I've also got the the the, uh, the Tokyo Mothers Index, which is this weird equity index that I, I've no idea why they call it. Maybe some Japanese a listener can explain why it's called the Mothers Index. Um, I've got Bitcoin, a position in Bitcoin. I've got a position in iron, you know, oh, okay. uh, which which I wouldn't again would have had a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it it's kind of achieved two things. Firstly, I'm, I've got positions in markets I w- wouldn't definitely have had a few months ago, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and if those are the, you know, the, the kind of these magic outliers that, that, that Rich is always uh, telling us mm. we should be hunting for, then obviously that's that's great. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's it's kind of, it, it's working. I mean, it's working in the sense that it, it's it's doing what it's supposed to do. Um, we, we I think in the, in the big d- uh, p- podcast at the end of the year, we did have a discussion. You asked me whether I would, I knew yeah. for sure whether it was better than my existing system. And I said to you, you know what, I'll probably never know statistically. Um, but but it's it won't the performance won't be significantly different from my current system. It may be slightly worse in some years, but over the long term, I'd expect it to do better just because it has access to that bigger set of markets. But purely from a kind of technical perspective, it's it's doing what it should do. One thing that actually could be interesting, and I don't know if you uh, you already do it or whether you um, would consider doing it. And that is to run kind of a, a paper portfolio where you say, oh, well, now I have $100 million in my account. So now I can just trade the 140 markets as if I had um, your normal. Do you do that just to track the difference as to how good it is to to get kind of a similar performance? I, I don't do that on like a live basis. But when I was doing the testing for this product, right. that was one of the tests that I ran, definitely. Okay. Um, one thing I, I think I've mentioned before I'm planning to do is to put up on a, a website somewhere a, a kind of set of um, um, positions that you would have given a certain amount of capital. So that that would be mm-hmm. quite an interesting um, thing to look at on, on a regular basis potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it is quite interesting to see to see you know the shape of the portfolio that this thing decides to choose given this huge universe of things it could trade. It's like yeah, there's 140 things I could trade, but you know what? What I really want is a position in the Tokyo stock in uh, stock mothers index, whatever that is. And now you will be known as Iron Man of trend following, yeah. of course. Yeah, well, it's better better than Mummy's Boy, which is obviously, you know, what the... Well, the, that too, actually. Yeah. But there we are. Okay, fair enough. Um, in terms of trend following on our side, we had a quiet week, but it was a positive week. Uh, once again, like you, uh, Rob, we saw gains driven by high energy prices um, and also the rise in yields, in particular in the short end of the curve uh, in the US. That certainly helped uh, nicely this week. The biggest detractor for us this week was actually the yen. It had a bit of a turnaround, a bit of a sudden bid came in, and we saw a strong strong up move against the larger downtrend that we've been seeing. Um, and finally, we actually added one new market uh, in the early part of this year, uh, aluminum, to our portfolio. Uh, that had a small positive impact as well. Um, my trend following uh, trend barometer, uh, I should say, was higher. Finally, it's starting to move up to neutral territory. It's finished at 39, so just kind of outside the, what I would call, neutral zone. Um, after quite a low reading throughout most of Q4, so uh, hopefully that's a good sign for the new year. In terms of volatility trading, overall the week was uh, as volatile really as the previous week, even though the S&P and the VIX finished the far last five days more or less flat. Uh, the choppy start to equity markets uh, in 2022 
has led to question if last Friday was another buy the dip opportunity. And it seems the dip buyer, so to speak, selected that the first half of Monday this week uh, as their entry point in the S&P 500 stage, an impressive intraday comeback uh, up almost 2% from its Monday low, um, which was around 11 o'clock. And the same pattern we saw repeated uh, on Tuesday, which also started with kind of deep in the red readings, um, but closed almost 1% higher than uh, on Monday. Uh, and then again on Friday, uh, where we saw the VIX collapse uh, as the S&P finished the day flat. The VIX was also affected by its behavior and peaked at 23.3 on Monday, uh, which was the high for the week, by the way. And then it collapsed to around 19.4 uh, towards the end of the week. Um, and that's a pretty big fluctuation of uh, four point that we saw on uh, intraday on Monday alone. Uh, and a similar pattern, by us, as mentioned, was repeated Tuesday and Friday, but in a smaller range. And on our side, we had also a small positive week for our volatility strategy. And maybe more importantly, it managed to avoid some of those bear traps where it kind of wants you to go long volatility um, that was set during the week. Now, this year, I've decided not to go into all the details that I normally do for my own trend following portfolio every week, because I think, frankly, it's a little bit boring to hear about all the nitty gritty details. I'm just oh, going to... Surely oh. not, Neil. Surely not. Surely. Oh, I mean, but for you, Rob, no. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about it in general terms. So it was it was a down week. Um, it's down 1.29% for the month so far, a slight down week. And in terms of the risk to stop, because I do think people like to know in terms of the riskiness, like with Rob... So right now, if it got stopped out of all its positions on Monday, it will lose 7.55%, and that's up uh, from last time, from last week, uh, which was 4.81%. And then maybe at month end, I can go into a little bit more depth uh, in terms of the systems and markets and all of that stuff. Um, that's probably more fun. As mentioned, we have a lot of questions that has come in. We have questions from John, Patrick, Frederick, two times Michael, Rene, James, Adam, and Irving. And we had a fun comment from Shannon, who sent in very kindly um, uh, a little reminder for us to read up on the latest uh, memo from Howard Marks, who happens to mention trend following in his memo this time. So we definitely want to have a look at that. Let's see how far we get, uh, because there are lots of questions. Um, and I don't think we're going to bring up too many other topics uh, today, except I promised you always to ask you, Rob, how's your book coming along? Uh, yeah, it's going okay. So I have actually reached the chapter now where I'm looking at things like, you know, should we trade trend following fast or slow or both? Um, and um, so I'm sort of digging into the, you know, the sort of the interesting patterns that we get with the sort of very fast trend following signals. I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but if you look at the historic performance up till about the mid 80s or 1990, that looked really good. Um, and then after that, they've kind of done very badly. Um, except for, of course, in the in the pandemic when there was a bit of a spike up and they, they had a one month of really amazing performance and then since then they've been pretty poor again. So I'm kind of digging into whether that's about just about costs, trading costs, because obviously the very fast signals cost the most to trade or whether there's something more interesting going on there. So that's where I'm at the moment. Well, sounds exciting. All right. So the first question we're going to get into is from John. John writes, my question pertains to risk management. Let's say that you're risking 1% per trade on a $100,000 portfolio, which is $1,000 per trade. If the risk is $500 per contract, you would trade two contracts. But let's say the risk is $50 per contract. 
uh, you would then trade 20 contracts for the same commodity and still be risking 1%. The problem I see is the very high number of contracts to trade when the risk per contract is low. This could increase risk with liquidity, slippage, gap openings, and other problems. One way around this would be to have a minimum risk per contract as a default setting. So in the above example, if the risk is $50 per contract for a total of 20 contracts defaulted to, um, to risking no less than $250 per contract as a minimum risk for a total of four contracts traded. What are your thoughts and ideas to resolve this issue? Rob, what are your thoughts? I found this question very interesting because it's kind of the exact opposite of what I spend most of my time worrying about, which is contracts that have risk that's too big and therefore um, causing me problems trying to get them into my you know, retail-sized account um, without running into issues with you know, with the sort of what I call the problem of granularity, which I discussed at length um, when I was in my last solo appearance, when I also described the, the solutions I've thought about and we're coming to this problem you know, the most sophisticated of which is the dynamic optimization I'm currently running. So it's kind of the exact opposite of what I spend most of my time thinking about. So I'll be completely honest, I actually take a massive issue with the question. Um, so specifically, I, the question make, makes sense logically, but um, when he says, the problem I see is the very high number of contracts to trade could increase risk with liquidity, slippage, gap openings and other problems. So I, I don't really see that at all because um, unless you are... So... I think thinking just about numbers of contracts, numbers of contracts is a very crude way of thinking about things. So let's, for example, um, take something that's got a quite a low risk, which is, I don't know, euro dollar. It's got quite mm -hmm. a low risk per contract. That means potentially you'd have reasonable size positions even with a retail account. Potentially that means that on a daily basis you might you could be trading, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Maybe even, you know, if you've got a kind of, even like a low single digit million dollar account, which is kind of, Still retail, really. You could still be trading, you know, reasonable numbers of euro dollar potentially in your portfolio. Um, but you know, how many euro dollar contracts trade every day? Like half a million or something ridiculous. I, I can't remember the exact numbers. But it's just just some absurdly huge number. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you might be plugging along, saying trading a single contract of, um, I don't know, uh, butter maybe. Um, and be, be like, well, I'm only trading a single contract. That's fine. I'm not going to run into any of these issues with, with liquidity, slippage, gap openings, and so on and so forth. But actually, um, I don't know what the daily volume of butter is, but it's a lot. It's not half a million contracts. 49 contracts or something Yeah, exactly. Like that. What did you say? 49 <laughs> contracts. So say it's 50 contracts to make the maths easier. That means that your single contract of butter that you're so proud of, you know, like, oh, I'm only trading a single contract. I'm not going to get any of these issues. That's 2% of the daily volume. So that's the equivalent of, of trading, you know, tens of thousands of euro dollar futures. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think the most important thing to think about is in terms of how big your positions are, if you're worried about your positions being too big, which is, let's face it, is a, is a nice problem to have. And, and I, I really think it's a problem very few retail traders will have. This is a problem that big institutions have really, um, it is to think not, not about the, 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 the liquidity in terms of how many contracts, but to think about it in risk adjusted terms. And again, I think a couple of appearances ago, Maybe people can go back and find the exact episode. I did describe in detail how I kind of winnowed down the potential set of mm -hmm. you did. contracts you could trade to those with reasonable risk and liquidity. And I said, when you measure uh, liquidity, make sure that you do it on a, both on an outright basis in terms of numbers of contracts, but also on a risk-adjusted basis to account, account for this effect. Having said all of that, I can still see that you may be potentially in a situation where you are worried that you're, you're, you are trading too many contracts. 
um, which I said I think is unlikely for retail traders. But but let let you know there are some there are plenty of institutional traders listening to this. So let, maybe I'm speaking more to them now. And of course, there are things you can do about that. Let's say, for example, that you're you're trading. I don't know an average of fifty contracts a day of say euro dollar or S and P or something. Well, you don't have to do all of that in one trade, right? You know, you don't have to kind of get up in the morning and then at 10 a.m. do your entire 50 contract lot. Um, because, yeah, probably not in euro, dollar, S&P, but there are plenty of markets where dumping 50 contracts in the market in one go, you will see excessive slippage and it will cause you problems. Um, but, you, you know, you if you're trading the kind of money where you're doing 50 contracts a day or something, then you probably ought to be in a position where you can spread your trading out throughout the day. You know, so it's rather than just just doing 50 contracts in one go, you know, you spread you spread that out throughout the day, and that's going to have a number of benefits. Um, obviously, you know, I mean, let's take an extreme example, which is my own trading system. My own trading system, um, the actual algorithm that does the execution, only does one contract at a time. It never does more than one contract at a time. So that means every time I'm trading, I'm effectively only trading a single contract. So even if there was a market where I was doing 50 contracts a day, I don't think there is. But even if there was, for sake of argument, I'd only actually be doing one of those trades every, every you know, and if, if I had to do that 50 times a day, you know, it's not it's not going to be the end of the world in terms of slippage. It's still be, and the other advantage is that you, by doing that, I'm effectively going to get something quite close to, to a, a time-weighted average price, or TWAP in the, in the jargon. So I'm I'm going to be less exposed to kind of timing risk when I'm doing my trades throughout the day. So there's a benefit there, um, and and I'm I'm less exposed to the fact the market might have gapped up or gapped down just before I did my trade. So so yeah, I I think this is a problem that won't really apply to most people, uh, and the solution is is relatively straightforward. I mean that that's how I see it. I don't know if you disagree, yeah. Niels. No, no, I don't. I, I think that um, I think what what I mean, obviously, with, with John's question, we don't know the full background. We don't know if he's a long term uh, trend follower, if he's a short term trend follower, all of those things that obviously are important to actually to yeah, be aware yeah. of. I should uh, say very quickly, actually, if you're trading very short term, then this is much more of an issue because, yeah. you know, you can't spreading, you know, if you're if your holding period is a few hours then spreading your trades throughout the days is going to do you no good at all. But I'm, I'm talking to someone who's a, long, a long-term trend follower here. No, absolutely. And that's what I thought. And, 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 but I think, I mean, I think the question is valid in, in many respects, um, but I also think all of your ways to kind of uh, deal with it is, is the way forward. Um, and one thing, and I'm sure you are fully for, for aware of this, John, is that, of course, that the thing is that when you get lots of contracts potentially that you need to trade, that is because the volatility of that market is low and therefore it shouldn't actually cause much issue to get those trades done more or less at the same price should you choose to do so. It's much more difficult potentially to get you know a good fill in a very volatile market, but actually the volatility will mean that in that case you're only really going to trade a smaller amount of contracts anyways because you adjust for the risk or the volatility in your position. I imagine you do that. So I, I think hopefully you've got lots of uh, things to, uh, to consider from, from Rob. I don't have much more to, uh, to add to it. Um, but it's definitely a question that we, um, that we would get a lot, I would say. Next question is from Patrick. Patrick writes, I really enjoy tuning into the podcast. Thanks for what you do. I have a question about optimization of cash balances 
for a futures trend following margin account. What is your opinion about using a fixed percentage of free cash balances, for example, 50% to 75%, to get allocate to a traditional 60-fold portfolio? In the context of a volatile volatility-targeted strategy, overall futures exposure would scale with the account's value as it fluctuates. There would also be plenty of room for maintenance margin. Would be curious to get your general comments as well as Rob's comments since I'm running uh, running his system as laid out in the systematic trading book. Thanks and happy holidays. Well, you're definitely a brave man, Patrick. So let me <laughs> turn you on to Iron Man here. <laughs> I know what Jerry's answer would be anyway. Trend following is the only strategy you need, Patrick. <laughs> do not be involved with any of this devil's work of 60-40. And I'll now do some... Pretend to have bird, to the English, birds on yeah, my soul, back shoulders. To back, yeah, to exactly. English, back to the English. Back to the English. Okay, so I guess part of this comes down to what the rest of your portfolio looks like. So for me personally, I effectively have this setup in the sense I do have a long-only investment portfolio, which is a bit like sixty forty. It's it's not quite sixty forty. It's got you know it's. It's got a more. It's got some some a bit fancy stuff in there in, in terms of I do some value selection of individual equities. I do have some momentum in there in terms of how I rebalance that sixty forty. But it's it's kind of a you know you can think of it as a sixty forty. And I have my futures trend following account. And the reason I have both of those is that as I said in the in the um, end of year podcast, unlike certain other people you will hear on this program with Texan accents. I, I do I do think that that you know this basically this world of kind of risk premium out there I want to earn um and um you know just trend falling by itself in its kind of purest form would not give me basically as much of the equity and bond risk premium if you like as I, I would want to get um so if if Patrick if this is his only investment account if this is all he has then actually it's probably not a bad thing to do to actually say well I'm, I'm going to have in this account both trend following and also this other kind of strategy, I think that's completely fine. I mean, it, you know, if you have, it's easier in some ways to run different kinds of investment training in different accounts for various reasons. Um, but there can be benefits to having it all in one account. Um, and, you know, Pat, Patrick's point here about cash efficiency. I mean, it is slightly, often as a trend follower, you look, you know, especially as a futures trader generally, you know, we look at our um, brokerage balances and we see this huge pile of cash there. Think, oh, you know, earning if you're lucky, zero percent interest, right? If you're un- right. if you're unlucky, it's negative, and you think, oh, I wish I could do something more, more, you know, more productive with this. Um, and I've toyed in the past with 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 various kinds of things, and I know all. Basically, what I do now is I just stick it into a what is effectively a money market fund, and just 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 leave it there, and it's earning probably like three basis points or something. But you know, it's better than nothing. Um, and there's other reasons for doing that around counterparty risk as well, but we won't go into those. Um, so it's not a bad idea. Um, now, the question is whether, um, you know, what what effect that will have? Well, the answer is it depends because let's make this really abstract and say we've got this trend-following strategy, we're going to add something else to it. If those two things are, are uncorrelated and running at the same risk level, so let's say that you've got a 60-40 portfolio that's that's probably going to have a risk of about 15% a year and like standard deviation at the moment. Let's say you lever- you've got your trend-following portfolio leveraged to the same kind of level. If you put two things into it in theory, then you know, which are uncorrelated, then your your average risk is going to fall. So if any if anything, you may find that your your you, you know, you, that, that doesn't really change your cash 
usage very much at all. If there's, you know, um, you, you, you can be using more of your cash for less risk. It, it kind of could work. I guess the, the you know, the, the danger could be if you then start to, to think, well, I've now got this really nice safe thing here. I'm going to start levering it up a bit more, taking a bit more risk. And and again, looking at that big, fat, spare amount of margin and, and just to say, well, I've got, I can afford to take more risk, I can afford to take more risk. Um, so there's almost two separate decisions, or almost three separate decisions here. Where, you know, one is what should your allocation be between different strategies, you know, 60-40, trend following, short vol, et cetera. One is where should those strategies sit amongst, you know, different trading accounts, you know, and there are issues here around things like netting and margin uses and efficiency and this kind of stuff. Um, and then the, the final decision is, you know, what what kind of leverage should you run run that those those things at? And the, those those the, the, the you know the, the danger with make, doing this kind of thing is you kind of have all of those decisions jumbled up. And I think you need to separate out carefully and think very carefully about each of those three components. And at the end of the day, it may be the best thing for Patrick to do would be be to add this sixty forty. Um, and in fact, in uh, I think it's uh, chapter four of my book, I do actually Ooh. explain how to run a traditional 60-40 portfolio, but using futures. Um, and there are benefits from doing it that way rather than actually going out and buying stuff. So, you know, it's not it's not a stupid idea or I wouldn't be writing about it, right? Um, but you just need to be careful. Yeah. Yeah, I think my key, to, uh, again, not much I can add here, Patrick, except for the fact is, and, and I want to make that clear to all of the people listening to us today, and that is that you should never think of the cash in a in a in a trend following futures account um, as being as safe if you start putting it into a 60-40 portfolio. It's com- two completely different things. One is just, you know, something that's liquid and ideally safe. Um and and the other is an investment. It's it's a it's a speculation in some sorts. Um, so just just make sure you're completely clear on that, and um, and of course um, see 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 what you feel you know most in, inclined to do. Um, there's no right or wrong answer here. Just need to be aware of the different levels of risk. I would imagine. Good, good stuff. Now we're moving on to a question that came in from Frederick. Frederick writes, I just want to compliment you for getting all your regular guests uh, for those two end of year shows. Very interesting and insightful. Um, thanks very much for that, Frederick. It was uh, certainly fun uh, as well. I have a few comments and one question. First, the comments. The discussion about adding some faster models to complement the main trend following strategies was great. This is what I practice in my own trading as I use three very short-term models uh, on three key assets. All three are profitable in their own right and they reduced a 12.5% loss in November to about 5% loss for all strategies combined as a recent example. Out of all the guests, the more theoretical approaches by Richard and Mark are great and I feel Jerry is the most consistent of all in his approach. For example, the fact that Rob does not let his trend-following strategies compound, i.e. he withdraws the profits every year, will not give huge confidence to a newbie to trend following. And my question at last, um, well, let's start with a comment before we get Uh, to the question. How how can I hold back against that? I mean, 
Well, you don't need your seven jackets anymore. You're completely fired up. <laughs> I now. am I absolutely. I'm, I'm. I'm really, really angry. Um, yeah, I, I guess the implication of the statement is is that um, I don't trust my trend following strategy, which is why I'm withdrawing the profits rather than letting them compound up. That is absolutely not the case. Um, I do trust the trend following strategy. Um, it's just that um, in terms of where I am in my life, um, you know, I'm effectively semi-retired. Um, and, uh, you know, I need to be a, a, a bit a bit more careful about my, my risk levels and, and my allocation to to trading accounts and, and, and things like that than I would be if, for example, I was a little bit younger and still working. Um, so it's purely a kind of, it's, it's not the optimal thing to do. And it's not because I don't trust trend following. It's purely because, because of where I am in my life and my own kind of personal risk utility. And in fact, I would argue, potentially, that, um, you know, if, if anything, the fact that, that there's only a fixed amount of capital there means I can be a lot more relaxed um, about the strategy and therefore effectively trust it more. But anyway, let, let's have the question. Well, we're going to get to the question, but I do want to do a little follow-up yeah. on, on, on some of those statements, Rob. So... Because I actually think you bring up a good question and, 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 or a good point, and that is kind of how should we view trend following? Uh, some people would argue that it's one of the safest investments you can do because of the inherent um, diversification. And we know who those and I people know, are. Well, we know some of them, that's <laughs> for sure. Um, but, and, and this is important, I think we've forgotten that there is potentially huge amounts in risk inequities. Huge amounts. Well, we had a little bit of a reminder, I guess, in 2020, but also a, a huge amount of potential risk in things like bonds. I mean, just as a little example, um, I think 30-year bonds in the U.S. have dropped 10, ba- 10 big points in the last four or five weeks. That's not risk-free. So I just wanted to ask you, of the various investments that you have, how would you grade them in terms of how risky they are, actually. So, the, well, I mean, purely if there's, there's, I can think about this in a couple of different ways, right? So one is is just annualized standard deviation, um, and the, because of the way I'm not so interested. in No, I know you're not. Okay, be, yeah, but let yeah. me let me just yeah. yeah so okay. there's, there's, let's put it this way: there's kind of the theoretical risk. Okay. Um, and on that basis, my my trend following is a, is riskier than say my equity portfolio, but that's right. that's a deliberate decision because I can actually scale that risk to any level I like. Yeah, just just by choosing the amount of leverage I want. So on that basis, you know, the the kind of ranking goes trend following by choice equities sure. bonds. Yeah, and I've got corporate yeah. bonds in there, and that that's not a controversial statement to order them in that order. I no. don't think. But uniquely, what this is a, this is related to futures trading specifically, and no, it's nothing to do with the fact that I'm trend following. It would be the case for any futures trading account. Futures are derivatives, therefore they are leveraged instruments. All leveraged instruments are inherently riskier than unleveraged instruments because you have the you know you're magnifying the risk and you have the risk of a blow up. You know, let let's take um, you know euro dollar futures. It, is it impossible that euro dollar futures could go to zero? I mean, it's incredibly unlikely, but it could theoretically happen. Yeah. If that happened, I would lose. And, and if that happened before I could close my positions and I had a long position on, um, you know, I, I set my, my, my risk, my kind of maximum risk on euro dollar futures is in notional terms, it's equivalent to twice my trade, the value of my current trading account. So I could lose my trading account and then the size of my trading account again. In theory, it's extremely unlikely, but it could happen. 
And that that sort of inherent riskiness um, is specific to futures. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like having, you know, say all of my network. I know I could do what Patrick suggested, right? It'd be much more efficient. I could get a much higher return. I could just put all of my assets into futures trading accounts, you know, get my 60-40 exposure through futures. Um, I'd have to have some single stocks as well, potentially, for I couldn't get rid of that potentially, but I've got all these ETFs I could replicate with futures, almost all of them. The reason I don't do that is because, you know, just to be able to sleep at night, I don't want to have all of my money in in in, in futures accounts. And the other thing that 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 is perhaps more specific to me is it's a fully automated strategy. So, you know, I want to limit the amount of money that's basically being run by a computer, which most of the time is just doing its own thing. Now I can, I'm completely, you know, I trust the computer completely because I wrote all the software, but but still, it, you know, it's kind of. It, I think it would be incredibly irresponsible of me to put my entire net worth in an account with, you know, which has got derivatives in it and which is fully automated. I, I think there, yeah. there are, no, there's nobody could do that. No, I, so I don't disagree with that. But still, I don't think you quite answered. I'm going to be like a journalist today. Go I don't for think it. you quite answered what okay. I was asking. So no, no. I get the fact that we can have single instruments that can go to silly prices, but you're never going to put all your money in Eurodoll anyway. Yeah, so that's yeah, not yeah. what I was looking for. I was looking at how you just how you objectively would view, um, you know, a hundred thousand dollars invested in your full trend following portfolio. Yeah. In terms of potential loss. Yeah. Versus a hundred thousand dollars in equities or a hundred thousand dollars in bonds. Now, yeah, I mean, I so know that, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let let's let's change let's change the discussion very slightly. Okay, let's assume that I'm I was doing my trend following with ETFs. So let's take the futures out of the picture completely. So let let's let's split out the question of leverage from the question of trend following. So if I had, let's say, I had three three investment accounts with ETFs in, right? One is I've got a diversified portfolio of equity ETFs. One has got a diversified portfolio of bond ETFs. And then the third one, I'm doing, I'm trading those things with a trend following strategy. Yeah. All three have the same annualized standard deviation of returns, which would be impossible. It isn't actually possible because the bonds are going to be much safer. But let, let you can, I could do it by, for example, having a higher percentage of cash in the equities account, for example. There's ways of doing it. You know, so on paper, you know, all three of those have got the same amount of risk. But in terms of, say, that's in terms of the risk measure of annualized standard deviation of returns. But in terms of different risk measures, like, say, expected drawdown, then yes, the trend following account would be safer. You know, interesting. Be interesting. So that, that, you know, if I, if I was not worried about futures risk, if I wasn't worried about counterparty risk, if I if I had complete one hundred percent faith in my you know computer programmers and I thought and the operational and my broker and I thought nothing could possibly ever go wrong, then you know, arguably it would make sense to just have yeah, everything in futures, a big percentage in trend following, you know, not necessarily everything in trend following because I said I do think you need those different sources of, of risk premium, um, but but yeah. I'm not going, you know, you can't, for me, I can't separate those things out. I, for me, it's like, I have to make the decision jointly. What percent, if I want to put more money in trend following, that means I need more money in this specific account. Sure. So it's a specific risk, really, that yeah. you're afraid of. Yeah. It's not so much the 
So the the the, the portfolio yeah. risk per it's se, not, it's, it's more the mechanics. Exactly, that, it's not that like there's a characteristic of trend following that particularly scares right. me, which would actually right. not be true of say a persistently short vol strategy. You know that right. that would have sure. risks in it that that would terrify me. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to let you off the hook. I think that answer was close enough. Okay. Uh, we haven't actually a, a, asked or answered Frederick's question yet, have we? No, no, no. Here, here we yeah. go. Here comes the question yeah. now. We're going to really see you steaming, I think. No, no, I'm just kidding here. Um, and my question at last, right, Frederick, in the shows that I have listened to uh, this year, I have not heard much about the topic of pyramiding trade entries and how different traders like to implement their trades entries. Do they use several clips um, separate by, uh, separated by ATR or a fraction of uh, this? Uh, does timing matter? A long period could elapse uh, between entries? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be very that? brief, Niels, because I think okay. you can give a better answer to this question than me. And that's because I use a continuous trading system, then pyramiding doesn't really apply sure. to me. I don't have discrete entries and entries and exits. So I'm, I'm going to pass yeah. this one back to you. Okay, fair enough. So, um, Frederick, I don't think we look at things like that as pyramiding. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we actually have a fixed and a maximum amount of risk we're going to be using anyways. It's only a question of how quickly are we going to get to that maximum level. So it's not like we're saying, well, hang on, um, I've made some money. Let me just keep adding more risk uh, to that trade. No, we look at the amount of money we manage in our portfolio. And if we want to allocate half a percent of risk to uh, as a market, well, whether we take it as as one trade or whether we spread it out over time uh, as five or ten trades, we're still going to get to the half a percent of maximum risk. Now, you so you ask about do we use several clips? We do. Um, could they be separated by ATI? They could certainly be different entry points or entry points um, de depending on different volatility levels uh, if you're using a volatility breakout system i'm not sure whether that's what you mean by atr but but let's just use it as as that as volatility and also in terms of timing yeah absolutely we use different time frames as well those are the typical parameters time and volatility that goes into many of the classical breakout systems so um so yeah indeed and as i said it's rare that i come across the word pyramiding uh in our industry but it certainly can be applied to other strategies and it has a bad rap. Um, but I don't think that that's how I would describe um, trend following, at least not done, done right. All right, let's move on to another question. This is again from one of our previous conversations, uh, Rob. It's from Michael, one of the Michaels. I think there are two of Michaels today writing in. And it's uh, our episode 170 from a few weeks back, which I titled Don't Try This at Home because that was regarding your your uh, mm -hmm. dynamic optimization. And anyway, Michael writes, um, don't try this at home episode has inspired me to try this at home. Ooh, not good. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for a project and building a systematic trend following model. Sounds like a good project to learn with. In that episode, Niels and Robert uh, both suggested using, a mic using the micro contracts whenever practical. Uh, and that suggestions has sparked the following question. Which additional full-size contracts would be considered like a must-have uh, in a system built out from a core of the common U.S. microcontracts? Uh, there aren't many micros, and uh, many of them are highly correlated. For reference, the U.S. micros are U.S. indices, U.S. currency crosses, um, WTI crude, Bitcoin, gold, silver, 10-year uh, notes, 
Um, thanks for your time and have a great 2022. So I guess the question is, if we have a limited amount of micro contracts, which must have, so to speak, full-size contracts, would someone like Michael need? Uh, and as you pointed out to me recently, uh, Niels, is now a, an Ethereum micro as well, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other problem with, with the micros, and this isn't so much a problem in the US, but... Um, the micros that are listed on, for example, the Singapore exchange often aren't very liquid compared to the full-size right. contract. So even when micros exist, they might not be liquid enough or have spreads that are too large to trade. So, yeah. I mean, this is kind of related to the the, the, the kind of bigger question of, you know, what market should you trade given a limited amount of capital? Sure. Um, and uh, the, the good thing is, of course, if, if Michael really is going to try this at home and do the dynamic optimization, then... <laughs> You can trade everything in, in the system, just picks what it wants to trade, which is quite nice. Um, so, I mean, I always start in the, with this by thinking about asset classes. Like, um, so I would, I'd, you know, the minimum for me is I'd like to have one future from, from each asset class. Um, so obviously you've got equities, you've got a couple of choices there. Um, you know, you've, you've got um, bonds. Um, there aren't any uh, micro contracts in bonds. Um, although there are some new... Only the 10-year, he the says. Tenure, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know this for yeah, a fact. Yeah, but also I, there's, I, some, there's some new contracts that are priced on yield and not on price for, for rates, okay. um, which are micros, but I don't think they're very liquid yet. I haven't looked at them, to be honest. Um, then you've got the, the the commodities. So you've got energies. Obviously, there's micros in both gas and crude. Um, there's no micros for volatility. So that's a major piece potentially you're missing. Yeah, but you wouldn't trade volatility from a trend-following perspective, would you? What, VIX and uh, VIX? When, I mean, I trend-follow yeah. VIX. How on earth do you do that We just treat it like butter. It's so erratic. So what? Yeah, but it's so erratic. Yeah. It's mean-reverting. It's a mean-reverting market. Um, my, my back test says otherwise, Niels. Okay. I, 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 this right, this is probably, this could be a, a whole a whole podcast discussion, actually. It will. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll mark okay. that down as a, fu a future bookmark, potentially. Okay. I mean, um, so actually you can get reasonably good. I'm just trying to think so that there are, you know, you can get probably reasonably good exposure just by trading mi micros. I mean, you're not going to have everything, you know, for example, you're not going to have every kind of subsector of commodities in there potentially, but you can, you can do reasonably well. I'm, I'm just trying to think what, what kind of big sectors are missing out of that list. Yeah, no, I think, well, it's uh, for me, and this is just purely from sort of, um, you know, anecdotal evidence, so to speak. And that is, if you look at a trend-following portfolio, um, uh, of course, we know that the most liquid markets, so to speak, are the financials, right? But the most diversifying markets in a trend-following portfolio really are the commodities. Yeah. So so for me, commodities are super important. Um, and gold and silver, obviously, are somewhat correlated in any event, right? Um, and and so for me, the, the missing part in a portfolio like uh, what Michael mentioned here are things like soft commodities, yeah. agricultural commodities, um, stuff like that. I think they did the, the super interesting markets. Yeah. So actually, actually, Neil, so this was something that I had on potentially on the list to talk about if we ran out of questions, which we're not going to do, clearly. Not today. But let me let me let me very briefly talk about one of the topics I was potentially thinking of okay. bringing up. Um, mm -hmm. So I did this exercise recently, right? I took all this massive 146 now markets, I think I potentially trade. And I, I look, I, you know, basically looked at the correlation as of, of trading all of those things. So not the actual correlations of the underlying instruments, but the correlations of my trading sub-strategies for each of them. Right. Okay. Makes and sense. then what I did was I ran a, a, a clustering algorithm. So I'm getting very fancy now in my old age with my, with my machine learning. Um, 
I run a clustering algorithm, and basically what, what that does is, is it essentially forms groups of things that it thinks are highly correlated. It does that automatically. Um, so it's effectively an alternative to the more traditional method I've used before, which is to kind of effectively subjectively label things and say, well, I think that there is an asset class called equities and all of these markets should be in it. So all of these things belong together. So this is more more kind of objective and says, actually, what do the correlations tell you in terms of what, what goes together? Um, and it's correlations. So Rich, I know, is spitting out his cornflakes already because that's a linear measure of co-movement and obviously potentially is trend followers. What we're really interested in are these outliers that you can't really, um, you know, measure very well just using a linear measure like correlation. But, you know, let, let's just 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 bear, bear with it. It's still, an, 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 I think... A, he can respond next week he, he when can. he's on the show. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just doing this purely as a classification exercise. Anyway, so what, what, what you can do with these, with these clusterings is actually say how many groups you think they should be. And it will spit out spit out the groups that it thinks you should. So what I said was, well, let, I'm going to do. I'm going to say, oh, let, let's say I want. I think there should be, um, uh, say, uh, five groups of markets. If I if I tell the the algorithm to split the world into five groups of markets, what do those groups look like? So just to say, this is kind of relevant to the 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 question we're doing here. I'm not going off completely on a tangent here, because I argue that what you want to be doing is having at least one market from each of those five groups. And the question is whether that's achievable just using micros, because, you know, maybe not. Um, so the first group is kind of uh, very unsurprising. It's bonds. Um, so, what you know, it's got it. We've got in there almost all, all the, the US. We've got all the US bonds in there. We've got the German bonds. We've got euro dollar. Uh, we've, we've got the swap markets that I trade as well. Uh, the only non-bond in that market, interestingly, is dollar yen. So maybe mm. that's because... Yeah. Well, kind of flight to safety. Exactly right? what I was going to say. No, it's great. Yeah. Exactly. There's a flight yeah. to safety market. Maybe that's why that's in there. The next cluster is very interesting because it's it's a very small cluster. So it only has six markets in it. Um, and it's an interesting mixture. It's got in there three volatility markets. So that's VIX, V stocks, and also the, 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 the Nikkei volatility market. Mm -hmm. um, it's got in there um, pound euro FX. Um, Singapore dollar, US dollar, and uh, China, uh, yeah, yen, uh, sorry, uh, run by yen dollar. So it's got three FX markets, three FX markets, three vol markets. Interesting. I'm going to call it the mean reverting group, <laughs> just to tease you. Maybe maybe it is. Now, that that group is a bit, you know, there's no micros sure. that you can trade there. So that, that, that little group, but you could argue it's the smallest group. Do you really need it? I don't know. The next group is, again, interesting because it basically consists of what I would call all the dodgy bonds. So the Spanish, Italian. Um, so They're maybe dodgy is a bit harsh. Uh, right. Because actually really looking down popular. the list, I can see in there there's the Swiss 10-year. <laughs> oh, my God. And the JGBs and the Koreans. So let's let's say uh, this is the, the non-German and U.S. bond it's group. It's the hardcore non-German yeah, bonds. Yeah, non-German, non-U.S. group. But also in this group is a lot of co soft commodities. Um, so you've got you've got your milks, you've got your oats, you've got your soya, you've got your wheat, you've got your cheese, you've got your corn. So it's a very a very interesting group. Uh, and also interestingly, in there somewhat randomly are a couple of gas markets. One of which you can get with a mini contract. So there is a mini contract in that group. Uh, not a micro a mini, mini gas. Okay, the next cluster uh, is kind of. Mostly metals, 
Um, so there's aluminium in there, Bitcoin, Ethereum, which I, I personally classify as metals. Mm-hmm. Now you, we can have a discussion about whether well you mine you mine you mine Bitcoin, them exactly. So I guess so. But yeah. I think they're a speculative asset like gold, right? I mean, this is the interesting thing about this. It's purely objective. So whereas we could have a subjective discussion about whether Bitcoin and Ethereum should be in an FX bucket or in a crypto bucket by themselves or in a metals bucket, this purely objective algorithm says, you know what, it be- that crypto uh, belongs with the metals. They seem to be more correlated with the metals than with anything else. Um, so you've got silver in there, you've got gold, um, and then there's a few random things. There's you know there's a few there's ethanol, lumber, um, iron, interestingly. Um, but yeah, there's a micro contract in this cluster too, which is gold. The gold micro, you could this this cluster here, which is mm-hmm. mostly metals and crypto and a few other things, you could represent with the with the gold contract. Now the last cluster, cluster five, uh, is very interesting. Um, it's basically almost entirely composed of equities. And pretty much all the equity markets sit in this cluster. And also interesting in there as well, um, we've got um, crude oil as well. Um, and let's see, we've got yen euro. Uh, we've got a few FX markets. We've got a couple of other metals markets, like palladiums in there, platinum is in there, gasoline's in there. It's a real mixed bag. But it um, now this, I should say one thing about this method is um, it's it, these groups will be constantly changing because it's using correlations from a rough, roughly the last 12 months or so to do this aggregation. Okay. So this grouping may represent the fact that over the last year or so, some energy markets have behaved more like risk risk assets, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So these correlations will change over time. But but I think for me, at least, you know, um, there's a couple of things about this. Firstly, just generally, I think this is kind of exercise is very interesting. It does allow you to answer questions objectively, like where should crypto be in a, you know, in a, in a sector classification? Um, it does allow you to, to sort of say, well, you know what mark what sort of set of markets would we need to hold to get diversification well right now actually um you know five five markets and, and mo- most of those could be my you know let's say you would want to get two from each cluster apart from that weird little volatility cluster that you d- don't think should be in there at all anyway Niels, i most of those markets um there there are there are micros available so i i think you can do reasonably well with micros because you're right the soft commodities are very represented but actually they seem to sit, at least with this methodology, they seem to sit with um, other types of assets and therefore you can get, you know, that aren't, maybe aren't as, I think often things aren't as diversifying as, as we think they are. Um, and for me, that that that's borne out by a, um, another thing I do, which is to measure the effective number of independent bets in the portfolio. This is a measure that some people may have come across, but basically... Um, there's a there's a technique you can use. You can get the correlation matrix and basically measure a number, and that will tell you, um, you know. And obviously, let's select, if you did have a hundred, if 146 markets had zero correlation, there'd be 146 independent bets. Mm. That's not actually the case, of course. And interestingly, the number of independent bets is is relatively low. I I, I make it at the moment about eight and a half. Okay, which okay. is okay. You know, which is close to your number of positions, which, which is why yeah. maybe one reason as well why I've only got twelve positions on, and that might be because at the moment things are very correlated. Maybe in the past that would have been the case, but but often there's less diversification out than you than you think. Yeah, one thing I just want to mention here uh, to this question from Michael, and I appreciate all of that uh, insight. Um, this is really really interesting. Also, something that we've certainly been looking at clusters of correlation rather than just you know, dividing it up in, in other ways. So I do think it's it's a very, very uh, interesting uh, topic. 
But I do want to say one thing, and that is when you do things like this, of course, we have to say, don't expect you're going to get the same performance from running a portfolio of 140 markets. And the reason is very simple. You're not going to catch all the outliers. You, you, you know, you're going to miss some of those big moves uh, like Rich loves to talk about and, and Jerry and so on and so forth. So, so there is a cost uh, to, to doing it this way. But again, this is all about compromise. It's about finding a solution to a problem. And it may not be a perfect solution, but it is one way of trying to t tackle this issue uh, of account size, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I reiterate what I said earlier, which is that correlation is a linear measure of co-movement. And therefore, it doesn't adequately capture the diversification that, that potentially really is available um, in a non-linear sense across these, these huge portfolios. Because you may, you may say, well, I only need five, seven, or maybe 12 assets to capture these, these big moves. Um, but, but if you get unlucky and you don't have the right the right kind of couple of markets from each sector that happen to be moving, then sure. you know. But as I mean, last year last year was a great example yeah. of that. I mean, yeah. um, uh, if you look at the, I was looking at this this week actually. If you look at the uh, Sockgen uh, trend index, I think there are ten constituents, and the dispersion of return it goes something like one of the constituents were up like thirty five percent, and and some were down five or ten percent. These are all trend following, but their markets uh, that they trade are vastly different. So you had basically two big outliers last year that did really well. And then you had the rest uh, doing much closer to plus minus 5%. Um, and, and I think that can be contributed to these uh, unusual, out, not unusual, but these outliers that we saw last year in some markets. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's move on. Um, question from Rene um, from Holland, I think Rene comes from. So uh, thanks for your kind words um, that you write in. We certainly appreciate that. Rene writes, I trade a breakout system with different lookback windows for a five, sorry, for a 50 instrument portfolio. This level of diversification is only possible for a trader with limited equity when using CFDs. The diversification is the great part. On the other hand, the use of CFDs comes with some disadvantages. The most important one is the cost of using CFDs. The spread and the slippage are not the real problem. It's especially the overnight cost that eat into the results. I know Richard often mentioned that he uses CFDs. I have a couple of questions for him. And of course, we'll also be grateful for the insights from the other team members. So since you're in the UK, you are familiar with CFDs, Rob. So I'm going to put it to you as well. In my trading, about 35% of the gross expectancy disappears into um, costs. This can deepen and lengthen a drawdown significantly. Uh, am I overlooking things or is this uh, mentioned percentage the normal and acceptable business cost of trading these kind of instruments? Are there syst systematic differences you should advise or consider when trading CFDs instead of futures? The overnight cost percentage vary during the year. I've already contacted my broker for some insight into how these percentages are calculated for certain market conditions. The broker doesn't want to give insight into how these values are determined. That gives me a problem when it comes to my backtesting. How can I cope with changing transaction cost percentages? Thanks for your time, advice, and weekly inspiration. Thanks, Renee. Well, I'm going to definitely give this one to you. I don't know it much, if anything, about CFD. So, um, Rob, take Yeah, I mean, I actually just went and got a book off the shelf called Leverage Trading, A Professional Approach to Trading FX, Stocks on Margin, CFDs, Spread Bets, and Futures. And it's written by me. 
Oh my so, god! Uh, <laughs> oh my god! We got an expert. On I, 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 I do consider myself to be a bit of a, an expert on the CFDs, and yeah, absolutely. So CFD brokers are very smart because they they always trumpet the the, the spread, small spreads, um, you know, and zero commission when they're doing all their advertising. Um, and because because of my browsing history, um, when I watch YouTube, every five minutes, someone a CFD broker advert pops up, or uh, if I'm on, or maybe a cryptocurrency. Uh, advert if I'm in a, having a particularly bad day and that's a, tries to sell me. I was just going to say that's a really boring browsing well, history to have. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I guess <laughs> I can probably better in some ways to have a boring browsing history. But anyway, moving on. Um, so, um, so, but yeah, what they don't talk about are these overnight costs. Um, and um, you know, they, they, as, as the um, questioner says, they can be can be fair, fairly significant. Um, now, in um, Interestingly, um, the I don't know about where the listener's writing from. You said he it sounds like a French name, Rene, but um, no, I think he actually he's based in in, in, in Holland. Holland. Okay, um, he's, he's my okay. guess. Yeah, I I don't know kind of how CFDs work in every single country, but in the UK, um, you actually have the option of trading two different kinds of CFDs. Um, one I would call spot CFDs, um, and these are the ones that charge these overnight funding rates these overnight funding costs, which is, you know, what what the problem is here. And the brokers never talk to you about those. And as the list is discovering, you may not even be able to find out what the rates are. And that that's terrible, absolutely terrible. I mean, uh, but it doesn't surprise me because when I was researching this book, which, you know, I wrote a couple of years ago now, uh, one of the things I did was go onto a lot of different um, brokers' websites and try and find out what these costs were. And, you know, a, a good a good outcome would be I'd have to click through seventeen pages of web pages and find the PDF, obscure PDF on the bottom of one page to get the numbers. A more normal outcome was the numbers didn't even exist. You know, didn't even exist. Um, and you know, yeah, it's absolutely impossible to know what you should be trading um, if you if you've got no way of estimating your costs. That's absolutely the case. Um, so that's one kind of CFD. Now there is another kind of CFD which is called a dated CFD. And these actually work a lot more like futures. So there is no overnight funding cost, but they have an expiry. Um, and they, the, 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 they're actually usually hedged using futures. The broker usually hedges them using futures. So they'll often have the same expiries as the future, with the exception that you can't often trade further forward in the curve. So you can normally only trade the front contract. Um, whereas for something like, say, crude oil or VIX, you know, as futures traders, we can go further out on the curve if, if need be. Um, but but otherwise, they basically replicate futures. Um, now, a lot of people don't like trading these, and the brokers don't like advertising them because the spreads are often wider than on the spot. But if you do a proper comparison and actually say, well, if I'm going to hold this thing to expiry, it's usually a lot cheaper to be paying that slightly wider spread, especially as you know we're not particularly active traders necessarily as, as sort of slow to medium-term trend followers. Um, it's much cheaper to be paying that slightly bigger spread than to be paying holding costs every day for, say, three months for a quarterly contract. Um, so, you you know, um, one thing you absolutely should should do is just do that comparison. Of course, that may be difficult if you can't find the numbers. Um, I mean, one thing you could do potentially is trial and error, and basically, potentially, you could actually back out from your account. Um, if you've only got one position on that, that should be fairly straightforward. You could back out from your account what this thing's costing you. Uh, if you have more positions on it, it may be more difficult. Um, but I would say 99.99% of the time, unless you're trading 
unless you're basically a day trader, in which case, you know, you, you're carrying no positions overnight. You overnight. You're not paying this overnight funding rate. But for the, the kind of trading we do, it's almost always better to be trading if they're available, these, these dated CFDs. Um, so my advice would, I mean, there's nothing wrong with CFDs. They've got a bit of a bad reputation. They're often associated more with gambling. And the adverts on YouTube, frankly, don't help in that respect. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, I have friends who are running diversified uh, portfolios uh, with CFDs because they can, yeah, they can trade 50 instruments with a relatively small account. Whereas with futures, they might be only, only to trade, you know, three or four, uh, even just sticking to the micros that we've, as we've been discussing. So they definitely have their place. Um, but um, for the kind of trading we're doing, just trading the normal spot CFDs, normally forget it. You know, you're just, your returns will be completely wiped out by costs. Yeah, I mean, just a, a, a quick comment here from my side, and that is since you're trading a 50 instrument portfolio, Renee, I just wonder whether it would be a better idea to cut down on the number of instruments and then move to futures instead and say, maybe I can do 25 Futures instruments, rather than this, just sounds I mean, this, like a this is a very market a variation of the question that was asked in the end of year podcast. Right? Is it better to trade fifty instruments using CFDs to the more of, expensive, or yeah. I mean, I don't know what that number is. I mean, you know, with the small with as a rule of thumb, certainly the CFDs I've seen usually have a one tenth contract size versus the future. So, as a rule of thumb, if you you can trade a fifty portfolio. With CFDs, you're probably looking at only five futures rather than 25. Yeah, it's, it's not enough. If you can get reasonably competitive costs by switching to, you know, um, expire, you know, things that expire, dated CFDs, um, then I would say actually probably on paper you're better off sticking to 50 CFDs rather than five futures, mm -hmm. assuming that's where the numbers sit. No, I, I don't know. I'm I'm speculating here. Yeah. No, I, w I wouldn't even. I mean, I wouldn't trade a five uh, future portfolio. I mean, I, I, that doesn't give you enough. Um, Diversification. Anyways, um, thanks for the question, Renee. I hope you um, could use the answer. Let's move on to the other Michael. Uh, the other Michael writes in, um, love the podcast. I'd like to submit a couple of questions for the show aimed at yourself and Rob, um, if I may. Of course you may. Aimed at yourself and Rob, one, do you have any advice for a 34-year-old looking to make a career move into the managed futures industry? Uh, there are at least two challenges um, I face. One, firstly, my academic background is highly relevant, but my personal work experience is less relevant. Two, secondly, since systematic futures traders focus on applying simple and well-known rules on a consistent basis with additional value, uh, what additional value can I offer to potential employers? Aimed at Rob, um, question, um, and it's related to the above, I'm fascinated to know if you ever considered starting your own fund. I think you have the knowledge and the credentials uh, to do it, so why not give it a shot after your next book? Perhaps I can be your first recruit. Many thanks, 
Michael. All right, let's take it uh, in in terms of order. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, Niels, well, you should definitely answer the first question, as you're more involved with the industry, and you know you're in a better position to say what 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 employees are looking for than I am. Yeah, I, I get the question actually uh, on on a semi regular basis actually by uh, people contacting me and saying, you know, I I really want to move into this industry. How how do I get in? And I have to say, um, first off, I would say that. The industry has not grown a lot in in all of the years I've been involved. Uh, I think there's a high concentration of firms. There are a lot of there's still a lot of small firms, but but many of them I think it's really tough to make it uh, as a business uh, when you're small nowadays. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily think that that's a great idea. Um, I think the best idea is probably to contact some of the larger firms and see if you can get an internship. Now at the age of 34, that's obviously may not be where you want to be in terms of your your life. But to me, it's a question of getting your foot through the door. Other things you can do, of course, and, and, and I'm not sure that's going to land you a job, but I think it's going to do you well um, in terms of experience and in also potentially in terms of being discovered or noticed. Um, but I, what I'd like to say to people in general when they ask me is to say, why don't you find people that where you think they're doing something that you would like to do? And you can easily find them on social media, of course. And then start getting, you know, join the conversation that they're involved in and start adding value to that conversation. Prove that you have ideas, you have knowledge. Um, that's certainly better than just coming at it from, you know, uh, out of the blue, contacting people who have never heard about you before. But I, I notice that myself. If I see people who have positively contributed to some of the conversations we're having here on the podcast and on on social um of course you're always going to be more open to answering or helping or open a door here and there and uh, you know i um i certainly have an example of that in in um in in uh, actually relating to the podcast a, a younger guy who uh, who helps out in the background he'll be more visible in the future um, that I was just very impressed with when he contacted me the first time. And he actually started out by offering me an opportunity uh, to speak to a large amount of students at his, um, where he was taking, doing his uh, his studies. Um, so I thought that was a kind gesture and I certainly uh, wanted to uh, to help him out later on, which I've done. And now he's going to contribute more publicly to some of the stuff we do at the podcast. So I think, Michael, that would be one of the things that I would do. But of course, now we need to hear about um, Rob's new phone. <laughs> uh, just one thing on that. Um, when I joined AHL, I was 32. So, you know, okay. it's possible to, okay. to get into this industry relatively late in life. Okay. Yes. The, on, the answer what is... What about 55, 54? Do you well, think I still have a chance? To, to, to change career. What were you thinking of doing, Niels? <laughs> no, no, I'm just... <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm sure we'd all be very sad if you decided to go off and do something different right now. Oh no! I mean, you could, it's if you wanted late. to, I don't know, become a clown or something. You could still do the podcast every week. That'd be fine. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Joe Rogan, he's a comedian. He? He's got the biggest podcast yeah. in the world. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I get asked a lot. Probably on average, every month or so, someone comes to me and says, um, "Would you like to, you know, start your own fund? Would you like some money?" Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, it's just something I'm not interested in. I mean, we've 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 talked before, and you just mentioned it actually, Niels, about especially in Europe at the moment, it's 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 a fair amount of hassle starting your own fund. Um, and though, although I would probably be doing it within some kind of incubation scheme where I'd be protected from most of that, 
Um, you know, the, the, the truth is uh, I'm at a stage of my life where I no longer want the, the hassle or the responsibility of, of worrying about other people's money. Um, and, uh, you know, I enjoy, enjoy immensely what I do, um, a huge amount. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons I left the fund management industry was I'm less keen on other parts of the job, like, you know, dealing, de you know, basically being a salesman, having to sell to customers, having to explain to clients when you've lost money, why you've lost money. Um, you know, uh, bureaucracy, regulation, you know, all, all of this stuff you have to deal with with as a fund manager. Um, I, my, I kind of, as a rough estimate, think that if I think about the stuff I'm doing now that I enjoy, I'd probably be down to doing that less than 5% of the time um, if I was running my own fund and spending 95% of the time doing other stuff that I do not enjoy. So um, it, it's not a cost-benefit analysis that works for me. That's fair enough. I think we're going to do one more question because we're already at um, 75 minutes. And so I want to respect everyone's time, um, including yours, Rob. So let's do one more question. We'll Maybe we'll save the other questions for maybe Rich. Actually, they're appropriate for him as well. And we can tackle them next week or when uh, Rob comes back in a few weeks. We'll we'll continue where we left, uh, left off. Um, but this question is, is somewhat relevant to what we talked about before. So I just want to give a chance to answer James uh, two kind of questions, so even though it's more or less one question here. Um, James writes, thanks for your kind words. And then he writes, a question for you on correlation. I'm trading a mixture of stocks, spot metals, spot crypto and commodity ETFs. No futures due to my account size, uh, apropos. I was feeling quite good about my portfolio correlation until I started looking further back. Here it is as of today. One year correlation 0.07. Um, three-year correlation 0.44, uh, including the 2020 COVID shock, and five-year correlation 0.27. Those correlation scores are the mean across the portfolio. First, I find the correlation of each market versus all of the other markets and take the average. So platinum will have an average correlation to the other 20 markets of 0.6, for example. I do that for every market, and then I take the average of all the market averages to get an overall score of the portfolio. In practice, when I'm considering adding a new market, I'll add it to my tables to see if this will make the correlation score go up or down. If this makes it uh, go up, I generally won't trade it. I'm sure this isn't the most advanced thing to do. I'm still very much a beginner and happy to try other approaches. When you look to assess your own portfolio diversification, assuming your goal is to get to zero correl correlation, uh, how far back do you look? Um, for your own measures. So let me start with that, Rob. Um, I mean, James has highlighted something here which is quite important, which is that like most estimates of statistical parameters, correlations vary over time. Um, and, um, you know, that could be for kind of good reasons or it could just be noise, actually. Now, I wouldn't panic and think that a correlation of, say, 0.27 is like, quote unquote, too high. Uh, as an average correlation, um, and in fact, having having a, a higher correlation, in a sense, is it sort of reflects the fact that you have a portfolio that's bigger. So, if, let's take a simple case. Suppose suppose you you know you just had these seven or five futures markets in your portfolio, which we both agree is not enough. Um, but you might be able to find five futures markets whose trading substrategy returns have got zero correlation quite easily. By the time you're up to 146. Um, it's quite likely that the you know the last thirty or so things you've added may have correlations of 0 0.7, 0 0.8 potentially, and therefore they would be failing what I will now call the James test, which is does adding this market increase my average correlation? The fact is that probably after the first half a dozen or so futures markets, 
every single new market you add will increase your average correlation. Does that mean you shouldn't do it? No, absolutely. I mean, as long as the correlation is not one, you are still adding diversification to your portfolio. And this is all on the assumption, of course, that, that everything's linear and that correlation is a sufficiently good measure of diversification. And, you know, as, as I've repeated endlessly and Rich will repeat endlessly, um, if he was answering this question, you know, we have these outliers, you know, as a linear, a linear measure like diversification, like correlation doesn't really capture the fact that, that you know, that, you you know, on paper, a 10 asset portfolio is not a huge amount better than the five, but actually in terms of outliers, it's a lot better because you've got a much better chance of capturing those outliers. So I, I, I'm so, uh, James, this isn't the most advanced thing to do. Uh, it's actually wrong. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I would not use this approach of looking to see if a market increases the average correlation. I definitely wouldn't use that. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about the fact that, that you know, your, your correlation is varying over time. That's just, just what happens. It's just maths. Um, you know, I'm, I don't actually spend a lot of time looking at things like average correlation, to be completely honest with you. It's not a statistic that that has much meaning or interest for me um, because A, it's noisy, you know, B, um, it, you know, it's going to go up naturally as my portfolio gets bigger, which is what I want. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wouldn't get too hung up on it, James, to be honest. Yeah. And then final question, which is somewhat related, but probably an easy one for us to uh, clarify. Um, because James also asked about, like what Jerry says, uh, where he trades highly correlated market like Ethereum and Bitcoin, for one, or some of the energy markets. Um, and and the question is, do you treat these as individual markets, uh, or do you treat them sort of more as one kind of bigger market because they are so highly correlated? And on and what I can say here, James, is that yeah, in, we've certainly over the years uh, on the podcast discussed this issue and and I think um, without uh, hopefully not misquoting Jerry that at some point, maybe not anymore, but at some point he would maybe give a little bit less risk to some of the highly correlated markets um, compared to other markets. Um, on the other hand, I think maybe, uh, and this is what I'm not quite sure whether I'm remembering correctly, um, that maybe that's more something that he used to do. And you, and the reason I use Jerry here as an example is because you specifically mentioned him in your question. But what I would say, for example, what we do uh, at Don is we treat all markets individually. We Because we, again, we don't know, like this year, you could say is nat gas and, and crude oil correlated. Yeah, of course they are. But if you look at it at the moment, I mean, nat gas has been going, doing things that crude, even crude oil hasn't been doing. So, so I would just, I would put together your portfolio the way you would like to trade them and 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 test them and see if you got too much in one sector, too little in 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 another sector. Um, realizing, of course, as we've mentioned so many times, that unless you trade all markets, you will miss some of the outlier some of the outliers, and and that's okay. But it's just something to be aware of. Um, nothing is perfect uh, in in that sense. But you also, by not having all the, all the markets, you might save some money from time to time because if if all the markets go into some level of consolidation and there are no trends to be found, you know, frankly, it could also cost a little bit more in those periods. So it's a give and take uh, at the end of the day. But of course, we advocate for as much diversification as possible. That's what we believe in and, and that's not changed. Um, anything you want to add before I move on here, Rob? No, Niels, you've you made a very important distinction between, um, you know, do we treat the markets the same by basically combining them into one supermarket, you know, forming an opinion about that supermarket and then having the same position on in both of those, but kind of split up. The, I don't, Jerry doesn't do that. I don't do that. You don't do that. You know, generally speaking, I, I don't think that's a good idea. 
But yeah, that doesn't mean that in terms of your risk allocation that you would have proportionally less in two highly correlated markets than you would have in two markets that are relatively uncorrelated. No, absolutely. So as I said, we're going to keep um, a few questions um, and they were from uh, Adam. Yeah, we're going to keep your question, Adam. We're going to keep uh, a question from Irving and we're going to keep the comments from Shannon regarding Howard Marks. Um, so we'll come back to that. In terms of performance so far this year, um, quiet start so far, relatively speaking. Btop 50 is up 0.35% so far in, in January. Sockgen CT index up 19 basis points in January. Uh, the trend index is up 0.4. This is as of Thursday, of course, I should mention that. I think yesterday, generally speaking, was a good day for trend followers, so probably they're higher by end of Friday. And the Sockgen short-term traders index is up 0.33%. Trend barometer, as I said, closed yesterday at 39. Uh, MSCI World, for, for a chance, we're ahead of the equities. Woohoo! Uh, so down 1.81% for MSCI World so far. And the bonds not doing any better. Uh, so watch out that 60-40 portfolio down 1.08% for the World Government Bond Index. Now, of course, that joy will be probably short-lived, but there we are. We, we're going to take whatever we can get, I guess. But on that note, we're going to wrap up this uh, conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed it. We hope that you will find time to head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. More importantly, get some more subscribers for the podcast. That actually turns out to be very influential on their algorithms. Next week, I'm joined by Rich for another interesting update uh, on his hunt for outliers and how the repair work <laughs> of his battleship is coming along. So I really look forward to that. Okay. Uh, make sure you send in any questions. Um and uh, as usual, you can either email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and uh, we'll do our best to uh, answer them as quickly as we can. Any final words, Rob, that you want to add? No, not really. I'm going to go off now and chop some wood in a desperate attempt to, to try and stay warm. Oh, my God, yeah. Either that or look at some of the questions we had earlier and that's going to get yeah. you going. Anyways, from Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime... Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.